This episode of Data Knots is brought to you by IT Pro TV. IT Pro TV is an easy, entertaining approach to online IT training. For a free seven day trial and 30% off the lifetime of your account, go to itpro.tv slash datanauts and use the code datanauts30. Data is a tricky thing, especially these days where it seems like everyone's data needs to be globally accessible at low latencies while remaining consistent and highly available. Jeez, that's a lot of demands, and that's a lot for any infrastructure engineer to take on. So we've enlisted the help of an actual, real, live NASA data knot to come onto the show and share her experience across data, where to store it, how to model it, and how to architect for it. I'm Chris Wall. You can follow me at Chris Wall on the Twitters. And with me is my co-host who can shotgun an entire case of Red Bull in under 30 seconds with his bare hands. He's Ethan Banks at EC Banks on the Twitters. And this is the Data Knots podcast. You can find this on all of our shows on iTunes, in your favorite podcatcher, or at packapushers.net. Is that true? Have you ever even had a Red Bull, Ethan, like in your life? I, I have had one this one what? time, <laughs> and I remember it because I, it was like, okay, I'm going to have a Red Bull, and I don't know what it's going to do to me. I'm very excited. And it didn't it, – it was okay. It didn't do much. Well, that's great. I guess you could shotgun one of them. It's, it's like drinking liquid toothpaste. Let's talk about something way more interesting and certainly more entertaining than Red Bull. And that's Karen Lopez. Welcome to the show. Who are you? What do you do? Let's get nerdy. Hi. That was really exciting. <laughs> that's how we do it on Data Dots. <laughs> I know. So much better than how you guys are in real life. That was great. Oh. I just got, <laughs> just got dissed. All right. <laughs> And great recording with you. We'll see you next week. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Karen Lopez, and I'm based in Toronto, and I love my data. That's the main things about me. So you're a data hugger in some way, shape, or Data hugger. Yeah, I'd say that. Data evangelist. Data evangelist. Wait a minute. So I almost forgot. I didn't even put it in the notes here, but you have like a doll or something that travels around takes photos? What is that all about? Action figure. Action figures. I don't know the verbiage. I apologize. Action <laughs> Yeah. So I travel around with some vintage Barbies that I've collected, but they're all working Barbies. So astronaut Barbies, architect Barbies. I have a brand new one. It's a game coder Barbie. And that doesn't make me a Barbie collector. That means that Barbie is a great prop for meeting new people who ask, why do you have a Barbie sticking out of your bag? And it also means that there are a lot of technical Barbies, so Barbies that have video cameras in them or cameras. And it's kind of funny how people, especially at tech events, are kind of drawn to interacting with an action figure who has a technical job and not her usual jobs that everyone sees her in, that I'm not even sure are actually jobs. I never had any, so it was kind of a new thing for me. I'm like, what is this thing and why do you have it? It's just a total, I was totally oblivious to that world. Karen, you've also tweeted more than 234,000 times. It might be up to 235,000. But early in my days, Twitter lost 20,000 of them and they never came back. But I don't think anyone's missing them. <laughs> got That's it. Insane. <laughs> <laughs> and what's the, and I, gotta, I also got to ask, what's the tie into NASA? So the real thing is, is I've always been a real sort of space fan, STEM fan, everything. And a few years ago, well, early in my career, my first job was working for Space Division in Los Angeles, working on Star Wars, the Strategic Defense Initiative. And I also worked at the Pentagon doing that. For a first job out of school, that seemed kind of wild and exciting. And then we would take breaks and go watch the shuttle launch on the 
TV in the lounge or something like that. Getting to work with people who had science on launches, that was pretty exciting. That wasn't part of my job. My job was doing data stuff. But that kind of after I decided being a government contractor wasn't the nice part about working in space projects. I got away from that. And then a few years ago, NASA invited me as part of a NASA tweet up where they invite only 150 people from around the world to watch a launch from the closest you can be, three miles from the launch pad. So I did that. And that was for Endeavor's last launch. That was the second to last shuttle launch. That made me so excited again about space. I just keep attending more. They're called NASA Social now. We got to explore that a little bit later in the show more. I, I want to ping you a bit more on that, but we better get talking about data stuff. Sure. Yeah, let's, well, I mean, it, I, I was going to say let's get nerdy, but we already are. Let's get different mm-hmm. nerdy around, <laughs> around data modeling and architecture, which is kind of a new thing for me. I don't really do anything in that field. And so when I started research for this show, I, I went to a blog post you wrote on Embarcadero, which I guess is now Idera. Yeah. And I love this quote. You said, I was at lunch with a client and you asked the server, what do you have on tap? And she went away for a while and came back and said, beer. And, I, <laughs> and you're like, yeah, that's correct. And I'm like, I love it because it's technically correct. There is beer available, but it's not yes. very helpful. Why did that come up? How does that kind of reference data modeling and architecture in a very fun way? Well, so from that story, we learned at that lunch place that we weren't going to get any expertise in drink selection from anyone in that place because basically none of them drank. So to them, what comes out of the taps is beer and it's all the same. And the same thing for bottles of wine and all the cocktails they made. I see that a lot. I specialize in troubled projects, which means I'm usually brought on to help a team get their data architectures and especially their database designs sort of on a track to where they can actually get into production, especially at scale and especially using modern data architectures. So they've started down a track, but are following maybe a set of methods where they believe that everyone can be a generalist and no one should be a specialist in anything. And that's what's gotten them into trouble. So I get their ideas behind everyone's a generalist. I don't think it really works on large scale, especially enterprise projects. And that was my way of explaining is you can get technically very correct answers from anyone who knows a little bit about something, but not so much helpful answers to your situation or to the type of problem set you're having. Absolutely. It just feels like you represent in that one little paragraph about 95% of the consultants I've ever met in my life. It's like, yeah, we all say it depends, but then I'm waiting for the shock and awe after it depends. And typically yes. it's like, it depends. Crickets. I'm like, it depends on what? You know, like, help me. Exactly. Here. Be prescriptive a little bit. Exactly. Um, so you can say it depends to a forum question where someone's posted their homework problem, and I can spot a homework problem a million miles away. Because at least database design has been going on for quite a long time, and there's an awful lot of homework problems that are all the same. But I think the interesting thing about all of that is it also taught me there are different levels of granularity to understanding data or to understand the things that you use in your life. So if you're just serving up data, if you just need to query data, then your views of database design or data models are pretty simplistic. You want a model that makes it really easy to query the data. You want a model that maybe has one table for every query, specifically designed just for your query. That's what you would want. But if you're me and you're a data architect and you live and die by data quality or your customers live and die by your data quality, 
you want the data to be designed in a way that supports the best data quality and the best reliability and availability of that data. And if you're not doing design for that, yeah, you're going to have a fast query and your developers are going to have a fast delivery, but it's going to serve up the wrong data. And so teams and organizations need to decide which is more important. It's like three legs to a school. Do you want data quality? Do you want it fast? Do you want it to come cheap? Everyone wants all of those things, but you really only get to pick two, right? So taking a step back, you know, what is a data model? In this particular use case, what is it that you're defining when you model data? Is it like an algorithm or a question or what is that? Well, let's start out with two completely different uses of the term data model. Maybe there's more than those. So the data modeling I'm referring to is something like an entity relationship diagram or a Chen diagram where we're modeling either a database design or data requirements and data relationships and information about data so we can better understand data no matter how it's implemented. Other people use data modeling to mean doing maybe machine learning or uh, data mining or data learning on top of actual instances of data. And what makes it even more confusing is we data modelers of the first case typically use the other type of data modeling to understand the data that's already there because that helps you really understand the nature of the data, at least how it is today. So those two things get really mixed up from time to time. For my type of modeling, what we're trying to do with it is definitely have layers of separation. So we want to have a conceptual layer, a logical layer, and a physical layer, much like other parts of IT do, so that we can talk about business concepts, regardless of whether they get implemented, like even business components on paper. We can talk about the logical view of data, which means it's kind of detailed and structured, like we're talking about, is it a number? Is it a value? Does it have a certain range? Or is there a certain way we need to check to see if it's valid? Is it a date? What type of date is it? How do we want to record the date? Those are all business requirements still, but they're starting to get really close to physical database design. And physical database design is, I want to implement this for this problem set we're trying to solve using this subset of the total logical model, using this particular target DBMS version of it and this distribution of it. So it's a very physical, here's what we're going to build. So there's generally those three types of data models that I work with, and a lot of confusion happens because different people want different views of those models. Okay, Gary, I want to bring this down to something that uh, – maybe an example that would help someone to visualize this because we've talked with a, you know, a lot of terminology and definitions. Can you give someone a firm example that are going to help them uh, you know, bring this home, what you're getting across here? Let's start it now at the bottom where I ended up before. A physical data model – a lot of people are used to those because a physical data model could be I reverse engineered what's in our relational database and I got a picture of it and I pulled back all the data that the data, all the metadata that the database knows about. I have tables, I have columns, they have data types, they have constraints, they have relationships between each other's via foreign keys, they have primary keys, they have permissions. I can reverse engineer that using a data modeling tool and that would give me a really nice graphic, usually in a standardized form, so that I could work with it. So I'd have, like we have for all kinds of things, a network topology or you know, a, a view of all the nodes on our system. 
most IT people are used to working with physical models like that. And they want them just to see a picture of the physical things. So I do those a lot. That's easy for people to understand. But another model I build is I'm asking users, what business processes do they need to do? What data do they need to do it? What granularity does it need to be? What should the rules be? Should I be able to record a date of February 29th, which is tomorrow, kind of, sort of, at least in some systems I work with, (laughs) even though that's not a real date. That's where people get kind of lost because technical people who are doing operational support, they don't really see a lot of need for that model. But what that model allows us to do is to bridge the gap between the logical needs of the business users, the legal requirements, the compliance requirements. Like I get to say, credit card numbers shall be encrypted in the logical model, but I don't specify how. And I might get to say that special meals on airplane flights also have to be encrypted because that's potentially HIPAA data or health data. I get to say these columns contain person identifiable information under this country's laws or under that country's laws. I mean, that type of explicit collection of requirements around data doesn't always show up in the database, but it's a really important requirement. You're making a a structural representation of the data that is going to fulfill business needs. In other words, given all of these constraints, I got to store the data like this, and here's all the criteria that's met, and here's the model that meets that criteria. Therefore, if you store the data in this way, you will be able to store it in a way that meets the criteria and access or query it in a way that meets all of that. So it's it's sort of like doing you know, heavy-duty thinking about it, about the data, as opposed to, let's see, I'm building the database. Let's build this uh, simple table scheme. I'll slap it out there. Okay, let's start populating rows. Off we go. Yes, definitely that. So I tell people, Data lasts longer than code, which is why we don't always get to optimize our database designs just for the developers or the code, even if that might sacrifice things. So the example I always use is, depending on your target infrastructure, if you're building it, you know, a data store in Hadoop, you're going to implement encryption one way or security one way or row-level security one way. If you're doing it in SQL Server... You're going to do it one way if you're using SQL Server 2016, and you're going to do it another way if you're still using SQL Server 2008. I don't want to get bogged down in those different ways that we have to protect data depending on our target infrastructure when I'm talking to the users. I just want to write down their requirements in a way that allows me to document them and negotiate for them. And then depending on where that data goes, I can pick the right implementation for that. And that's why it's really important that those two separate models exist. So when you brought up conceptual, logical, and physical for the data models, that's mm-hmm. the same multi-tier architecture that we're taught for data center architecture. You know, the, the yeah. VMware certified design expert preaches that out the wazoo. I feel like there's a mirror there potentially to more infrastructure-focused architecture and data modeling architecture. Can you comment? Are they kind of similar in thought? Meaning we typically start at the conceptual, we're talking more like, entities and objects and workflows and then logical, like you said, what are we going to mask and control all the way down to revealing what we need to buy and implement at the physical layer? Exactly. And and it's in other parts of the IT stack and, and even the business stack. When I mean not just people, but how they implement their facilities, all professionals and all architects do this. I mean, even for my 50 year old home, I have architectural drawings that have a conceptual drawing of people enjoying martinis and cigarettes out on my deck. 
<laughs> when it was first designed in the yes. 50s. And, you know, then down now I've got architecture drawings for the same deck in the same room around it where the electrical outlets are going to go and where the pipes are going to go. And imagine, you know, if you're sitting down with a client designing their dream home, if you have to start worrying about building codes and the placement of outlets and the placement of vents, you don't want to do that. You want to meet their needs and you want to have a drawing for that. I think that if there is a section of IT where or data centers where we're not thinking about different layers of separating implementation from requirements, from visions and dreams, then we're probably still making the same mistakes that we've always made. It's where we, we've learned that this is how architecture works. And even though, you know, to some people who just want to build and operate something, this just all seems like it takes too long. But we've all learned our lessons about why we need to have these models, why we need to separate them, why they might even be different types of people doing them too. So Karen, how does an infrastructure engineer, someone who's building the physical aspects of the data center, how do they interact with the data model? Is there a way that these folks can add value? It depends on what we're talking about. See there, I use that it depends. It depends on it because if I'm building an accounts payable system that needs to scale globally and be available in lots of markets and it's multi-tenant and everything, then definitely infrastructure people need to be involved by the time the physical model is being decided because someone would have decided what kind of data storage, meaning what kind of database or data storage is it going to be? Some in flat files and some in Hadoop and some in Redis and some in DocumentDB, like who knows? Those all have different infrastructure requirements behind them and different security requirements. And do they all need to be kept in sync? That's when someone should be involved. But the interesting part for me is I'm starting to do more data models and thinking about data models of infrastructure. That sounds like Inception. Like you're modeling the model. (laughs) Yes, yes. But we all know that everything has a data model and not everyone sees it. But I think I was born a data modeler, so I see them everywhere. I'm constantly tweeting about how everything's a data modeling problem to me when I see it. It's actually a current challenge with network infrastructure is how do you model the network such that you can, using one common set of software, act on very diverse networks. And there is no good model for the network as such since everybody's a bit different. You brought up machine learning earlier, and I recorded a show with David Meyer of Brocade who was uh, not complaining, but just explaining that that's a real problem that networking folks face when trying to apply machine learning to the network. Because there is no consistent model as such, how do you uh, apply a machine learning algorithm? Because what is normal for one set and can be classified as normal for one data set may be abnormal in a different set simply because the model's different. Right. So this is the classic enterprise data problem that we've been going through for 20 years that we're making progress on it's kind of the same thing. Usually the data shared by infrastructure, so I'm going to say hardware, even though I know not all infrastructure is hardware. I mean, that is, I think, one of the reasons why we're starting to see software-defined everything, trying to build in another layer, not just for some of the reasons for those things. So I even see a data model of a database is kind of a software-defined database for the NoSQL world because of the same reasons. We've got database vendors, we've got hardware vendors sharing data, monitoring data and status data and specification data about their components, but they tend to do it in a proprietary way. And then when you try to integrate it all together, which is normally a data modeling problem of trying to make sort of a central vocabulary and a central way of exchanging data, 
it's very difficult because a vendor has already established a de facto standard for their own products because no one else did, because the community didn't, but no one else did. So now we're doing these integration translations, integrate, translate, integrate, translate. And it's very hard to bring all that data together in a way where you can have one system to see your overall infrastructure because it's all siloed things. But I do see vendors and communities coming together to try to solve that. This is going to sound a little silly maybe, but uh, it was kind of a revelation that data modeling is a thing. And just because I haven't had to work with data on that level. So I've done tons of modeling in my career. I've designed all kinds of things, things as simple as a whiteboard diagram to things that are a bit more intense involving maybe a more detailed infrastructure build sheet for a complex data center architecture that's going in. I've done lots of modeling, but modeling of data for me has never gotten more complicated than rows and columns in a spreadsheet or building out a simple database schema for a MySQL database, that kind of thing. So to hear from Karen about the sorts of complexity and conceptualization that can go into thinking about data so that you actually get it right was, uh, was intense and very, very interesting. What was your takeaway, Mr. Wall? Mine was that people are out there that just want to put their hands on something and build, and they can be frustrated by having to deal with this conceptual and logical busy work and don't see how it matters. And I can raise my hand. I was that person. I've been there. I was young and thinking, let's just build this stuff. We're wasting our time. But trust us, trust everyone that you're hearing on this podcast by taking the time to build an architecture, look at the conceptual, logical, and then the physical layers. It defeats technical debt. It defeats rework. It creates a long-tailed and healthy design doesn't matter the discipline. So it's great to hear that that principle still applies to data modeling, just like I think it does to everything in IT. This episode of Data Knots is brought to you in part by IT Pro TV, and we are glad to have them as a sponsor today. IT Pro TV is an excellent training resource if you are trying to learn new technology or keep your current IT certifications up to date. Well, why? What is it that you're getting with an IT Pro TV subscription? In a nutshell, you are getting access to a huge library of professionally produced training videos. There's over 2,000 hours of content there now. They add 30-plus hours every week, and you can get at that content any way you want. You can watch their live stream while they're actually producing new content or watch whatever they've created on demand via the web or little streaming devices like Roku or Amazon Fire TV or their recently launched Apple TV app. What sort of courses are there? I've looked at the list, and uh, here's a few I picked off the list that I thought were interesting. Uh, Microsoft Exchange 2016, Wireshark, Certified Encryption Specialist, Amazon Certified SysOps Administrator. If you're into Cisco and networking, there is CCNA and CCNP training. If you're into VMware, there is VCA6 and VCP6 training. Also, ITIL and Six Sigma if you're on the process sort of things at your enterprise. So how much does it cost to access all of this content? Well, that depends on what membership level you subscribe to, and there are a couple of levels. First, the new standard level is $57 a month or $570 per year. That gives you access to the video course library, course transcripts, which I think are pretty cool if you like to read through material as well as watch it, live chat, and the Q&A forum. Secondly, there's a new premium level. That's $85.70 per month or $857 per year. That gives you everything the standard level gives you, plus unlimited transcender practice exams and virtual labs. Now, the transcender practice exams, the virtual labs, that's the stuff you want to make sure you're really and truly ready for the actual exam. It's like your dry run. 
If you buy a year of itpro.tv up front, you're going to gain the ability to download courses, whether you buy at the standard or premium subscription level. Try it free for seven days. Receive 30% off the lifetime of your account when you sign up at itpro.tv slash datanauts and use the code datanauts30. So, Karen, you've done a presentation that uh, we're interested in unpacking a little bit. Seven databases in 70 minutes. And in this presentation, you get into... CAP theorem. CAP theorem is all about consistency, availability, and partition tolerance. When you get into distributed computing, those are the the challenges you've got. You can pick two out of three, and then in programming, it's a trade-off. You can have consistency and, and availability, but then partition tolerance. You know, if the segments of the network, if you will, are broken up, you've got a challenge there, and so on. It's a trade-off with two out of three. So when dealing with databases and database design, how does CAP theorem uh, play into things? Wow, that's like a couple of hours to talk about that. So one of the things when I talk to people about CAP you theorem, you seven data, databases in 70, 70 minutes, right? minutes right? This is like yeah. 70 seconds to explain yeah, CAP Yeah, exactly. So I'm not going to try to explain it too much, but it's one of these things that once you get it, it's a really simple thing. And I say it's like the classic, you can have something fast, you can have it cheap, or you can have it done really well. Pick two and come back. It's that same sort of theorem, Right. And so consistency is about, like, we came from the relational world. So consistency is definitely, if you can't write the whole transaction in a relational database, you don't write anything. That's what I was raised on. We didn't need any dang dirty data in our database. But in the CAP theorem, there are other workloads and other data stories where maybe we don't care about the consistency to be all at the same time. So if you're writing data across several nodes, you can let one node be inconsistent for a while. And we call that eventual consistency, which to a traditional data person sounds very mockable, but it's very real. And depending on the application, may be acceptable. Yeah, exactly. I mean, lots of people go to social media, so I'll go there. If you're not seeing somebody's Facebook post for a couple seconds until after someone else has seen it, do you really care? Would you even know? That's an oversimplified example of it, but it really is, it's not for your bank balance. It really shouldn't be for your bank balance. It should be the types of data stories where eventual consistency works. And we're all preaching high availability. You know, we all need 17 nines and everybody's willing to pay for them until it's time to pay for them. (laughs) As we're recording this, Amazon Web Services, S3 services having a bad day. Yes. And so therefore, a lot of their clients are, right? They don't know why, and they're sending out these apology letters. But anyway, normally in most systems, CNA come together. It's just fine. Partition intolerance is once you start throwing that in, if you can't talk to another system, partitioning happens and you kind of let both systems work offline on their own, like a credit card charge or something. But then some things come back together and you need to resolve it. And you're right. Now you've got, there's a reckoning that's got to happen to bring those two petitions back into alignment. And you have to be able to tolerate, maybe you won't be able to do that perfectly. Also something that relational databases don't like. Yeah. (laughs) And that feels like another 70 minutes where you could harp on on that particular topic. Yeah. So that was a great presentation. Again, it's in the show notes. I recommend going through it because I thought it was just really neat to hear what y'all were thinking. The other one was the big data, NoSQL, and data modeling. You had uh, 10 tips for data modeling success yeah. on modern data projects. We have that one in the link too. But the reason I like this one the most was towards the end, you bring up a point that hit really hard, right right in the heart. 
there will be jobs for traditional ERD relational modelers, just like there are still jobs for RPG and COBOL programmers, yeah. which is like, it, oh, dagger right in the back because I used to write COBOL. A I long used to write RPG. <laughs> we both have these horror stories. RPG 2, yay. Yeah, yeah. That is not rocket-propelled grenade, although it felt like it at the time. Um, <laughs> I liked it. I got to put letters in columns that were very specific, and it made me happy. It appealed to my OCD. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so that was kind of like the vinegar. Here's the sugar that resonated strongly was you said a good modeler is an architect at heart, and finding the right solution for the data story is really the goal. As infrastructure engineers... We're often limited to our own our own skills, our own vendor relationships. They have an iron grip on the business. How do you as a consultant find the right solution without kind of being blinded by, you know, I know RPG and I know this traditional <laughs> stuff and not get bound by it? Because I think that applies no matter what industry you're in. Yeah, I, definitely so. I mean, there's a lot of FUD around cloud stuff and any of this new stuff, especially in the data world between big data, NoSQL and the traditional relational and everyone keeps making you choose a team. And team cloud or team on-prem or team SQL or no SQL. And both of those are just sort of fake news because everything's hybrid, whether you think it's hybrid or not now. And the best thing for someone to do is learn the stuff you don't know, whatever side it is. So lots of no SQL people who've never worked with relational have been told a lot of fairy tales about relational, like a relational database starts to die after one terabyte or something silly like that. It really is about knowing the full stack of opportunities, enough to be literate about them. And so that when you have a data story, which is kind of like a data problem, it just sounds better, a data story, you know what pieces you're going to need in order to solve that. Are we ever going to get away from CAP theorem, the CAP assumptions yet, if you will? And I say ask that in the context of CloudSpan or the Google Cloud platform, taking some kind of some unique perspectives about this. Mm-hmm. I want to answer to this, like I said, these are like the laws of thermodynamics. I suppose we're going to change those one day <laughs> but, or get away from them. But just like any of these sort of theorems where everything's a trade-off, pick two or pick one, you can't have both, technology is going to help us mitigate the impact of them all. But I really think CAP theorems about physics and it's about math and it's about when your partition goes away, when your parts come back together – you know, there's always this sort of mumbling about, and then it reconciles, and then you might have to do some manually, and you might lose some. It all depends on your data story. Maybe robot-managed cloud systems that self-repair and self-partition and then get back together again. If you're okay with losing some posts or losing some things, then maybe CAP isn't as important to you, which is why most solutions where you deal with CAP, you tune the CAP. You tune the consistency you want. You tune the availability you want. You tune how and when you want it to partition and how you want it to do. Like that's where the archetype jobs are. So I don't think it's solving a problem. I think you'll work knowing that this is the environment that you work in. You sound suspect. You're hedging bets. Yes, that was <laughs> Well, it, it's fair though because you're right. No matter what problem you're trying to solve or th- there's a system of constraints that you've got to work within no matter what. And, and right – Maybe your cap changes at some point. doesn't mean there's not going to be some sort of constraints that you're trying to deal with. Yeah, I think so. And I think because this is something we have to do trade-offs on and everything's cost, benefit, and risk, we'll see lots of products, lots of vendor solutions, lots of proposals on how to solve something where someone wants to be more 
partitioning and still have consistency, you know, something like that. And we'll see solutions for specific types of data stories. And then we'll see things that, you know, like Spanner, that'll say, we have solved this entire problem. And then you go drill in and you find out, well, except for this, right? So where do you see the enterprise market going as far as their database architecture? Because for a long time, it's been everything's been relational databases. It seemed like you know, SQL Server, MySQL was the de facto standard. I was building LAMP servers for uh, quite a while and uh, writing to MySQL, SQL queries, et cetera. Is that where things stay or is that going to change? I still think there's going to be a lot of data stories where re- relational technologies are needed. And while people with NoSQL solutions are building ACID compliant with SQL on top solutions, I think one of the struggles they have is that Relational systems have been around for so long, a lot of the products have a lot of maturity in them. But that doesn't mean an organization's entire data solution goes into that stack. I think what we're going to see is people choosing more of the right tools for the right job in the right location, whether it's in the cloud or on-prem or a hybrid solution, and whether you're spinning up workloads, so just using these things as a service, or whether you're actually deploying solutions that you're running 365, 24 by 7, and then some. That's all going to be an architect's job to try to figure out what the solution is. I would go as far as saying, I think I will see relational for the rest of my lifetime only because I'm still also working with pre-relational technology sometimes. But, you know, I'm not saying it's going to be forever. Maybe it will be a relational solution inside a NoSQL solution much like we're seeing now, relational solutions that have no SQL features built into them. Right solution for the right problem. Oh, everybody wants a binary answer. No, I used <laughs> to use this and now I use this new thing, but it's never that simple. Exactly. Coffin nail question here on, on databases and where they should live. Do modern databases need to live in the cloud? Should they? I know it's kind of open-ended. We were talking on another show about data gravity and where do you actually put all of this data and ultimately... If you're like, oh, terabytes easy for relational database, I mean, that's a lot oh, yeah. of stuff to push around the wire. And the ability to say, yeah. oh, I can spin up massive compute to potentially crunch on a data set seems like a huge win. So yep. what's the story there? What are your thoughts? Well, I think our current solution set and our decisions on cost, benefit, and risk right now are highly tailored to the fact that virtually all cloud computing billing models let you put all the data you want into the cloud for free and then charge you on egress. So that has really formed which solutions are all in the cloud and which stay on-prem. And then also storing in the cloud, really, really cheap. You know, we all know that. So that's also formed. If those business models change, then it will also have an impact as we start making cost, benefit, and risk solutions on whether cloud services are where everything's going to be. I don't think today a modern database has to live in the cloud. There's all kinds of reasons why not to access certifications, all of that stuff. But what I do believe is that modern database architects need to start building their systems using cloud-like thinking, meaning elasticity, scalability, automate the hell out of things, self-repairing, self-diagnosing, monitoring that goes not just to one little thing, but all things. Like, we need to see a cloud mentality happening with modern databases, no matter where they sit. A 
eventual consistency is something I hear about here and there, and it's, it's nice to hear that it can be driven by requirements. I mean, as any proper architecture should be. So if you have a requirement that allows for consistency to be slightly askew across systems, I mean, that's great. It's one less thing to worry about. So everything doesn't have to be rock solid, synchronized across every node, node demand. What about you, Ethan? Oh, the point that Karen made about the right solution for the right problem, because because as she said, that is the skill of an architect, which is interesting. I spent a bunch of years in my career as an architect, and to do that job well, you've got to understand, A, the problem. You really have to know and understand in a detailed way what the problem is that you're trying to solve so that you're building the proper infrastructure. If you don't understand the problem, then you can't go to B, which is understanding that wide variety of solutions that are available to apply to that problem. So you got to get the problem right, and then you got to understand all the different solutions that might apply to that problem. Because I think some people think architecture is is really, uh, I know a tool, and that tool is my hammer, and therefore all problems look like a nail. And that is wrong. That is not what architecture is about. You've got to really have a, a much bigger picture mentality to properly architect. Right solution for the right problem. I alluded earlier in the introduction that we would be talking to a real live NASA data knot. We tickled it a little bit in the uh, intro of the show, but what is this program? How are you involved? Potentially, is it still around? Can people become a data knot? And no, yeah. no disrespect to NASA. We literally did not know this existed. I just picked <laughs> the name of the show by adding data center to astronaut and blending it together. Yeah. And see, that's why we love both names, both efforts. NASA Data Knots is an initiative in the open data part of NASA. It's a program. It, this is the third class to come through. So I was in the second class. So these are volunteers, people from around the world with a focus of encouraging women and minorities to apply and be part of these classes to start growing data scientists to work with NASA's open data and along with a lot of their other technologies. There are missions that can be done. There are special projects. We just had our kickoff meeting in D.C. at the NASA headquarters just last week. So we deal with not just data, not just computers. So we worked with a project from Dr. Kate Stone And she builds chips that you can go and put specially printed paper on and then link it up to a build an app app on your iPhone and use that printing as a keyboard so that you can interact with things and build sounds and art and everything on the fly into anything you want. And I'm kind of a maker hacker at heart, and that just appealed to me to do it. So it's a community-driven thing to get people involved in NASA technologies, especially open source things, especially using data science-like things like machine learning or just learning to code and learning to work with data, learning data visualizations, and then going out into our communities and helping share that also within our communities. Yeah, you seem to really be into, uh, you know, just the NASA stuff, but science, technology, engineering, math, uh, STEM kind of projects generally, hackathons and camps and competitions is, uh, is part of what you do. How do you get into something like that? Like, like <laughs> if I wanted to attend my first hackathon, like I, okay, so I'll just, as a step, I'm a computer science trained person, but I haven't done professional coding in you know, really since college. And, but I look at these hackathons and go, that's interesting, but I'm intimidated because I'll be just way too slow and won't be able to contribute anything. <laughs> I mean, how would someone like me get involved in, uh, in my first hackathon? 
Well, the best advice I can give as having been a judge for some of these things is these are all done in teams. So find a team that's experienced and be a valued team member to that and learn. So the most successful teams are often ones that have a passion for the domain. Most hackathons aren't just about a technology, but they're for something. So there's ones coming up for crowd financing. There are hackathons coming at NASA has a space apps challenge that does the same thing. If you have passion for a domain, now most people who take who do hackathons nearly professionally, they have a set of tools that they know they can use. They study the domain, they study problems that the community is having, and they try to build a solution for that. And those tend to do really well. The other great secret about most weekend hackathons is you don't actually have to complete everything you say you're going to complete. You just have to do like any other product development need to have a good pitch. So a lot of teams have great marketers or product managers. <laughs> and you, you have to be able to describe the problem you're trying to solve and why it's best for that hackathon and why it met the goals of that hackathon. And so you get evaluated across all those things. And as long as you have a good lean MVP product or mock-ups that you could show, you have a chance of winning. But the fun part is, is really is you're spending usually a weekend together with people with a like mindset but diverse points of views who want to use technology for good. And that's the real secret behind it all. I've yet to go to a hackathon. The uh, rubric has one, but I keep missing it. It's like at a time when I'm elsewhere. And yeah. It sounds cool. Like uh, it reminds me of a land party back in the 90s. Yes. Where you just, you lock yourselves in a big room for a couple of days and eat pizza, and chicken nuggets and work on something as a group. In this case, we were playing, you know, Quake and Rocket Arena. But yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so, I mean, the value of those was uh, for a land party was meeting your friends and it was really before the Internet and, and mm-hmm. you kind of got to to share some ideas and, and things like that. Is it similar for a hackathon? I mean, what's what's the value to invest that kind of time and energy, typically on a weekend or something like that, to yeah. to work on something that may never actually come to fruition? Well, sometimes the products do come to fruition, right, and become commercial products or commercial commercial services. So that's always exciting to see. And it all depends on, is it a local community one done by your user group? There's prizes. There's always the networking without having to wander around shaking hands, asking people what they do and do you, are you looking for any people who do what I do? That painful type of networking where you just get to network with people talking about tech problems and your laptops and the stickers on them and the where to find the resources and why do they always serve pizza and that kind of networking I find a lot more fun. And then there are some serious hackathons. I know the Imagine Cup has big, big prizes. I think it's for students, but even into graduate degree students. And some of them are done. I know Canada does a, a code hackathon where you get lots of visibility by participating at the higher levels of it. So it all kind of depends on what kind of hackathon you want to do and how often you want to do them and whether you have your own team or whether you want to be part of a new team. You make it what you want. Hmm. Where's the best place to find uh, these sorts of events? <laughs> Hackathons, camps, competitions. I mean, it's, I don't know, you get to go around and meet up and so on, but uh, you got better tips? I was really going to say meetups, but also following the types of, I'm going to say organizations that you might follow just for a passion anyway. So definitely that's how I found out about the NASA Space Apps Challenge and about ones that say, like I participate in that Microsoft do. You know, it's just sort of, I think, starting out in whatever your own communities are, whether it's a hackathon or a code camp or sometimes professional associations have code camps to do something for local charities. 
that's my recommended way because it's going to be along your lines of passions that you already have right now. And then once you've got experience doing them that way, reaching out into other communities by using Meetup, by looking, you know, to user groups that are advertising them. Oh, Meetup is such a, it's a bit of a minefield because occasionally you find activists which so often on Meetup, it's just a, something's interesting. There's just not a lot of activity, which is a bit of a bummer sometimes. Exactly. Well, there you have it. Databases, modeling, NASA. I mean, this this show had it all. We really appreciate you coming on and talking around uh, all of your nerdy passions there, Karen. And for those that want to take the conversation further, where can they find you on the interwebs? My blog's at datamodel.com. And then also the work I'll be doing as a mentor to the NASA data knots things. That link's in there, too. It's a little bit longer. So it'll be in the link. Excellent. Well, that's it for today's edition of the Data Dots Podcast. Your social creature. You can follow me. I'm at Chris Wall on the Twitter, or my blog is wallnetwork.com. And my delightful and friendly buddy, he's Ethan. He's at EC Banks on the Twitters, and his blog is ethancbanks.com. For more data not shows about infrastructure engineering, do the nosedive down the rabbit hole that is packetpushers.net. You'll find the data knots talking about containers, inserts, PowerShell, data models, full stack engineering. We got it all. It's right there. Go click. Until then, may your server lights blink, your storage spindle spin, and your cables be cleanly managed. like your style. You're good at this podcasting thing. You should do another one. Sure. 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 Sure.